y'all. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Trisha Freeman. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. In this episode, we're going to delve into the heart of information literacy in today's rapidly evolving digital landscape. Joining us is expert Jennifer Lagarde, who happens to be one of my very favorite people to follow online. I think this conversation will give you a sense of why. We're going to talk about the work that she did on the book, Developing Digital Detectives, and her brand new project that's coming out very, very soon. You'll be able to learn all about Jennifer, her work, by heading over to the show notes. Before we dig into our conversation, I do want to remind you that we have a few seats left for the Shifting Schools PLC AI cohort. This is a three-week online cohort where there is a challenge, a community, And there's a lot of conceptual understanding around AI and its impact on K-12 education. If you'd like to join me for that three-week cohort, head over to the show notes, learn more, and find your special Be A Better Ally podcast listener promo code that gives you 50% off the cohort. At the time of this recording, there's only five seats left, and I'd love to have a few listeners of this show inside that cohort. Now, without any further ado, welcome to the show, Jennifer Lagarde. I am so excited to be speaking with you again. The last time we chatted, uh, we talked about a book that you co-authored, Developing Digital Detectives. And I've got to say, like this feels like a year where the book is not brand new this year. I'd still call it a new book. Uh, but I feel like we really need to lean into that idea of developing digital detectives. And whenever I talk about how much I love your book... One of the reasons I kind of just like I'm on my pedestal about it is because the book has really practical activities, but you also talk about mindsets and dispositions, one of them being curiosity. Can you walk listeners through when we're talking about, you know, again, developing information literacy, how a disposition of curiosity can be so essential uh, to that development? Sure. So thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And as we near almost two years since the book's publication, I know I'm biased, but I have to say it feels like every day the book becomes more and more relevant. That being said, so much of what we do around information literacy in school feels disconnected from the real ways that not only kids, but we get information everywhere else. In school, we tend to think about information literacy as a task to be completed in a way that makes it easy for teachers to assess. So oftentimes we'll provide learners with an article or something of that nature to sort of dig through and look for clues that we think are going to be there that'll somehow magically tell us whether or not the content is credible. Where in reality, that's not how we consume information. Our students aren't, you know, running home to read long form journalism. They're not subscribers to the New Yorker. You know, they're getting their information in bite-sized visual chunks where that are that are very, very dependent on uh, triggering an emotion in us that will get us to engage with that content. So therefore, we really need to help kids develop a disposition, a habit 
of following their curiosity around whether or not something feels right to them. You know, if you are scrolling on TikTok and you uh, come across a video that triggers a strong emotion, that's a signal to press pause, but then to also to wonder some things like, hmm, who benefits if I feel this way? Huh, I wonder if that's really true. Goodness, who is this person? How could I find out more about them? Those sort of natural questions that we ask when we are um, engaging with information every day really are the best questions for us to follow through when we're trying to determine whether or not something is worthy of our engagement. And that's the kind of question that I really ask kids when I'm working them, working with them around information literacy is not, is this real or is this fake? Can you trust this? Can you not? Because those aren't the real questions kids would ask, but rather I talk to them about what engagement is on social media and whether or not something is worthy of that. And in order to figure the out the answer to that, you have to follow your own curiosity. The other thing I would say about that, and this is such a long answer, I apologize, but you know, in school, we tend to beat the curiosity out of kids. We have a school system that's focused a lot more on training kids to find the right answer than to ask the right questions. And when it comes to information literacy, that really is a question-driven discipline. So we have to engage kids in the art of following their curiosity and clues to ask really good questions, because those questions are what's going to lead them to a healthier experience both on and offline. Everything you just said, the answer could have been even longer, and I'm still with you. Um, you know, I just, I'm, I'm nodding. This is a, an audio medium, so people can't see how um, enthusiastically I'm nodding along. And I'm thinking, this is something that's so useful for adults. Um, yeah. You know, I, I work a lot with adult learners, school leaders, and I'm often encouraging them when they're working on LGBTQ inclusion, information mm -hmm. literacy is critical because you know, media framing exists. So often sure. I will say, you know, you see that story in a reputable news source. It's not that it's not a reputable news source. I want you to look for whose expertise and right. whose voice is there and whose is not. Um, and I, I think that idea of, you know, being curious about your emotional triggers is good for learners of all ages. Sure. You mentioned TikTok. You know, even my generation, uh, you know, mm -hmm. is going there now for for I think initially it was like, oh, we can get recipes there and we don't have to yeah. scroll, scroll, scroll. Um, right. And, you know, I find myself also coming across and paying attention to news there and, and, and chatting with friends in my age group who are also using TikTok as a search engine for different mm -hmm. things. Um, and I wonder if you want to say a little bit more about, again, the benefit. I think it, it's almost sort of like adults need to get a grip right. on uh, what it is. Be you know, again, the emotional triggers work. This is how advertising yes. operates. And I, I always say, listen, you know, these big brands, they're not just investing this, you know, huge amount of money into commercials and advertising for fun. It's because it works. Right. So I think there's like that overlap of tactics that we see in marketing yeah. and advertising that's also being used in the news landscape as well. Right. One of the activities I love to do with both kids and with adults is I ask them to imagine, you know, a, a moment in which they've come across uh, 
an alien who has just landed on our planet who has never heard of social media. And I asked them to explain to that person, to that alien, to whatever, someone who's not been living on this planet or under a rock for the last 20 years, what the purpose is. How would you explain the purpose of social media? And for adults, especially, that takes a little unlearning. You know, I remind them we're not talking about our opinion of social media. We're not talking about the effect of social media. We're talking about the purpose. And overwhelmingly, whether I'm talking to kids or I'm talking to adults, the answers that they craft revolve around how we use social media. They will say a social media is a place to share information. Social media is a place to get information. Social media is a place to connect connect with friends, to share pictures of your lunch, you know, like so on and so forth. They all, they list all the ways that we use social media. And that's a great convert place to start a conversation about how that while those are the ways we use social media, that's not really social media's purpose. The purpose of social media is to make money for its shareholders. These are for-profit companies. And that's in direct opposition to the fact that we want to use these tools for all these purposes, but not pay for them. So we live in a world where we believe information should be free, where social media should be free. And the companies who provide those services for us have to make money. Those two things are in conflict. And so therefore, the way they make money is through our engagement. What that means is that all those tools that allow you to do the things that you want to do there, they exist to make money for those companies and our engagements, our clicks, our double taps, our likes, our follows, our shares, all of those things, the time that we spend scroll, you know, just even viewing a certain video, that's the thing that drives and make makes revenue for their for those companies. And so in order to get us to do those things, what social media companies have found what they've learned from marketers is that the number one way to get us to engage with content is by triggering an emotion. And those emotions are powerful and emotions are good, right? You know, emotions cause us to get up and go to work or to school every day. You know, emotions are good and they're powerful, but they're also um, sometimes can take control of our behaviors in ways that can be unhealthy or um, can develop habits and patterns that ultimately become unhealthy. So therefore, you know, when I talk to kids and adults, I think the first step when it comes to information literacy is really social emotional learning and becoming aware of what it feels like for us as an individual to be triggered because that's very personal. You know, how, what I feel like when I'm triggered and what I want and need in those moments can be very different from you and from anybody else. So recognizing what that looks like for you so that you can navigate then and take control of those feelings when they happen. Rather than letting those feelings become the driver, you can learn how to pump the brakes. And while you ultimately may still end up engaging with the same content, you're doing it because you want to, you think it's safe, is because you think it's important, or because you there's some questions that you want to find answers to, you're not doing it because you're outraged or you're afraid or you feel like you need to belong or any of those other emotions that may ultimately lead to unhealthy behaviors. So for me, that's 
the the big that's the first part of information literacy and heck yeah adults need uh to work on that as well as kids i know lots of adults who aren't you know very good at navigating their emotions that is not a quality that's unique to young people at all I, yeah, I I love you, you know, bringing forward that experiment, like, what is the point of it? And I I think too, like dissecting, what is it that keeps you Mm -hmm. here? You know, I I find often when I have that conversation around, what is it that they've done as a design choice that makes it so easy to lose an hour? You know, often people will point out infinite scroll, right? Mm -hmm. Or if we're talking about Mm -hmm. streaming TV services, that the next episode just loads, Yep. doesn't ask you. It's just going to mm-hmm. keep going. So the lack of friction there can be really important. But I, I do find the more we have these conversations, the more people start thinking about it during yeah. their use. Um, you know, a- again, that just getting into that routine of which emotion are they trying to dig into here mm-hmm. uh, can be really useful. Uh, and I think, you know, even for myself, am I doom scro- scrolling right now? Right. I mean, I'm the same way. Yes, I do the same thing. I mean, and I, here's the thing, you know, kids, whether we're talking about, you know, as young as third and fourth grade, or we're talking about, you know, big burly seniors in high school, they're capable of understanding how algorithms work, how these companies actually can weight your responses based on the emotion that's that's attached to the type of response and how that therefore not only dictates the content that you will see in the future, but the feelings that you'll feel in the future. This is the the thing I say to both kids and adults alike. When you double tap on something, you aren't just saying to the algorithm, hey, give me more content that looks like that. What you're saying is, I like feeling this way. Make me feel this way again. And for, for kids, that's a light bulb moment because that's an easy question to ask. Do I like feeling this way? And if the answer is no, then don't double tap. And younger kids especially uh, respond to the idea then is if you don't like feeling this way, do you want your friends or family to feel this way too? And if the answer is no, if this makes me feel bad about myself, if this makes me feel sad or afraid, no, of course I don't want my friends and family and other people I'm connected to to feel that way. So you can have some control over whether or not they get their buttons pushed in the same way you have by just just by taking control over how or if you engage with the content. And that's really empowering because it can feel like, you know, that you are sort of trapped in this endless doom scrolling, like, you know, like I'm powerless to put the phone down. It can feel that way. And it also, when we talk about things, how, you know, sometimes it feels like our phones are listening to us or, you know, it feels like these tools have taken over every aspect of our lives and they have in some way, but ultimately we're the ones who have control over our actions and it's our actions only that will cause these companies to change the way they do business. So really, we're in control. We just have to take it. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, it dawns on me that as you're saying that, that we do have control, that somebody who maybe really struggles with their social media use is hearing you and they're saying, Jennifer, I don't. I don't. And I I think actually one of the ways that you can learn actually that you do have that autonomy is with like small scale experiments You know, it doesn't have to be going from zero to 90 in a day, right. you know, like last summer, my wife and I had decided when we could do this and, and work wasn't interfering, 
we're going to have the first two hours of the morning totally screen free. Mm -hmm. Like, don't even turn the phone off from airplane mode, just nothing. Um, And we were noticing how like, gosh, that's such a better start to the day. My thinking hasn't been fragmented away from just enjoy your breakfast, just enjoy walking the dog, right? I'm not thinking about, I've got to get back to that email or I've got to respond to that person. But it did have to be like a hard and fast. We're both committing to this and it's two hours. Um, And I think if if I had said, you know, we're going to commit to doing this for forever, it's impossible. Right. But it was like, let's just try this. Um, And the days that we can't, the day, you know, they're just days that we can't, but it was an experiment and it, it did. It was very informative, I found. You know, I don't. I want to be clear. Like, I don't want to conflate physical addiction with screen usage, but I do think there's a useful comparison here. You know, we don't tell someone who is addicted to alcohol or to some other substance just stop. You know, we don't give. That's not useful advice to someone who's in that situation. In a similar way, it's not useful advice to kids or to adults who are struggling to reduce their screen time to just put your phone down. That's not useful or helpful advice. Um, And so when I work with kids and adults on that, it's exactly what you're saying. Oftentimes, my first suggestion is change the place that you charge your device. Often we charge our device like at our bedside table or some other place where it's enhanced, you know, within arm's reach so we can grab it even when it's, you know, recharging. Put the device in another room when it's charging so that you have to physically get up and go get it. That doesn't mean you won't, but it gives you a few seconds to think about, "Mm, do I really want this right now? You talked about two hours in the morning. You can make that a much smaller amount of time if that's what works for you to start with. 15 minutes. Decide I'm going to take 15 minutes twice a day where I'm not going to pick up my phone. I'm going to put the phone in another room. I'm going to do whatever. Starting at the steps that feel manageable and then building on them as you feel capable to do that is the way we build any muscle. And so it's the it's the same with this. But as educators especially or parents and caregivers in the lives of young people we have i feel like it we do ourselves and our kids a disservice when we just sort of tell them put your phone down you're spending too much time on it i don't think that's useful i i agree with you and i i think uh, again what you're talking about too is making sure like we're not veering into that shame lane because that mm-hmm. doesn't help anybody out either right. um and i i find you know we can be very critical of teens and their use. And I really feel like sometimes we got to step back and ask, like, what are we modeling? Because they see us too, right? Mm-hmm. They see us too. Um, but, you know, it's it's the ongoing sustained dialogue around this that I think is wonderful. And, you know, whenever you speak, I'm so happy to hear you. And this is why I'm really glad that you've got news about a new podcast that's coming out soon. Um, I'm, I'm hoping you might talk to my listeners a little bit about your show um, and, and what folks will be able to learn and enjoy uh, when it comes out. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to share a little bit of information about what I've been plotting and scheming. It's funny because while the last really 10 years of my life have been um, focused to a large degree on this work of information literacy, my, you know, 
I'm an old lady. So my career, you know, overall has really been focused on helping kids become readers, writers, and thinkers. And in particular, I've been really, um, the work of my heart is helping to nourish the reading lives of young people. And those two disciplines may feel a little disparate because, you know, one is super dark, the other is um, a much, much lighter, but I believe they're branches from the same tree because I believe that a huge part of information literacy work, in addition to being able to have some roadmaps for navigating your own um, emotional responses, a huge part of that also is uh, figuring out ways to uh, supercharge our empathy muscles, the ability to think about who the humans are behind this technology. Because even in 2024, when we're talking a whole lot about like machine created technology, about AI, and all that kind of stuff. There's humans behind all of that as well. And humans have foibles. Humans have flaws. Humans are, you know, biased, but they're also... uh, can get tripped up by things. You know, humans have all sorts of characteristics that are worth empathizing with, even if you don't agree with them, right? And there's no other vehicle for me that's better at um, helping to work that empathy muscle than reading, and in particular, children's literature. So I'm really excited to be starting a podcast of my own right now called The Reader's Heart, in which I'm just going to be chatting with authors and illustrators around this idea of children's literature as being both a vehicle for empathy and for joy. And there's two real pieces of this for me that are incredibly important. One is that I just think our world needs more light and joy right now. And so I want to put something out in the world that does that. But the other piece of it is, is speaking of misdis and malinformation, there's a heck of a lot of that going around right now related to public schools, related to librarians in particular, and by extension, authors and illustrators. And I want to do what I can to use my platform to counter that narrative with not only something that's much lighter and more joyful, but frankly, more factual. So these conversations are really about uplifting the reality of what children's literature does for us in a, at a time when I feel like we need it more than ever. Mm. That kind of origin story reminds me a little bit of, uh, I don't know if you know the work of Melissa Ryan, who's got a great mm. free newsletter that comes out every Sunday, Yeah, um, you know, also about mis dismalinformation. Uh, a while ago, I got to interview her and, and ask her, you know, where did that come from? It's a hugely, I think, successful newsletter. And similarly to you, she said, you know, I, I sort of, I saw this issue and I asked myself, like, what can I do? And then I right. did something. Um, I'm wondering, Jennifer, like, to what extent, you know, circling back a little bit to our earlier conversation what role did social media play either in, you know, kind of being a part of the origin story or being a part of um, how you know you're going to be able to get some of this critical information and joy about children's literature out there? Uh, Are the two, to a certain extent, kind of partnered or married? Absolutely. I mean, 
I, I to to go all the way back to the first book I I wrote with Darren called Fact versus Fiction, which came out in 2018, and that we worked on for a few years prior to that. The origin story of that is exactly what you were just talking about, where we saw the places that we held really really dear being infiltrated by mystics and malinformation in ways that we were frightened of. And when I say places, I mean social media platforms, but I also mean our country and our democracy and our uh, relationships with people. We saw the way that mystics and malinformation were being weaponized to divide and to further agendas that, you know, frankly, we feel are harmful, not only to uh, individuals, but on a much more global scale. And so Darren and I were faced with this quandary of, well, we can just complain about this or we can do something. And that was where our first book, that's what our first book grew out of, right? So in the same way, I I feel a similar sense of urgency around this new work in that I see these platforms, these spaces being used to amplify information that's both untrue and harmful, um, and that we could have a much longer conversation about like what the effects of that are, uh, what the effects of that is rather. But my feeling was I've been in these spaces, these social media platforms for well over a decade now. I know and have benefited personally from the ways that they can be used for good, um, for the ways that they can be used to connect people to both other, I mean, to ideas, but also to one another. And I felt like, you know, I, I'm at a point where I think a lot of people are with social media, where we're sort of reading this, reaching this precipice of, do I stay or do I go? Do I still feel safe and healthy in these spaces? And, you know, if I leave, what's next? And I'm kind of at the point where I'm just stubborn enough to feel like, no, I'm not going to be run out of these places. Rather, I'm going to use them in a way that models what they're good at. And so I hope that this will be another example of that, that the podcast can live in a space and be found by people on social media in the very places where I feel like these narratives are doing the most harm as sort of a counter balance to that. I'm, I'm with you on that. And, you know, you're such a champion for children's literature. I'm very fortunate as well to get to auth- uh, interview children's lit authors every once in a while. And that's like this little corner of social media that is so mm-hmm. passionate and is so important. Um, you know, I, I often will kind of talk a little bit about how I think children's lit belongs on our professional learning shelves, um, yeah. you know, especially for school leaders who do not always have the most time in their schedule. I find there's so much great children's lit out there that, that yes, it absolutely can be joyful. It can be instructive and thought provoking as well. So if I've got a school listener, school leader who's listening and they're thinking, you know what, I want to do a little bit more to incorporate children's lit into my media diet. Can you, A, tell us when we can anticipate the show going live? And then B, can you just talk a little bit maybe about, um, you know, if it's top secret, which authors are coming on the show? I get yeah. that. Um, but I'm, I'm wondering if you want to just speak to a book or two that might come to mind when you hear me say children's lit, school sure. leaders, um, this is this is for you too, uh, and sure. you know I I don't mean that in a way that's sort of like um, 
being pedantic, and I don't mean it in a way that's sort of suggesting as though children's lit is not worthy of, of school leaders. You know, I, I think that mm-hmm. children's literature is one of our most treasured, beautiful art forms. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it needs to be elevated. I just think we need to maybe check our misconceptions about, you know, the audience only being for young readers. Right. Oh, gosh. Well, this could be a whole episode in and of itself. So you'll have to stop me if I just go on forever and ever. First, uh, you know, my friend John Shu is going to be delighted right now when I quote Kate D. Camillo, who is his favorite person ever. But, you know, Kate D. Camillo famously said that stories connect us. And that's really what story is, is a conduit, right, to the world, to ourselves and to one another. So for school leaders, I think the first piece of why you should read children's literature is because it provides you with another tool, an incredibly powerful tool to connect with the students you serve. Um, Because then you have the opportunity to get to know kids, to help them get to know you, and to help them navigate the world through this powerful conduit of story. There's nothing more powerful than to be able to talk to a kid about a story you love, etc. Which brings me sort of to my second point, which is, you know, in school, we focus a lot about on helping kids know how to read, which is so important. Kids need to know how to read, right? We focus a lot on that, but sometimes at the expense, I think, of teaching kids how to be readers. And that's different. Our reading life is different from the skills that we need to be able to decode um, and to be able to, you know, understand literary devices, et cetera, both of which are important. But kids are not going to be motivated to do that first work if they don't really understand what the purpose of story and reading is in their lives. So those two things have to go hand in hand. And being a reader ourselves of of books that were written for the very kids we serve gives us an opportunity to model what it looks like to have a reading life of our own. So, you know, and... So for school leaders, that's just some, that's a drum I've been banging for 20 years. Um, and, and every time I have the opportunity to share that with a school leader, I do. That being said, um, I don't think it's top secret uh, in terms of sharing some of the guests who will be on the podcast, which is going to start being live the first week in February. So just a couple of more weeks, but um, I've already had the opportunity to record interviews with Newbery Award winner Meg Medina, with uh, Newbery Honor winner as of this morning, Erin Bow. Um, I've got interviews interviews coming up with Jerry Kraft, with Kyle Lukoff. I just recorded an interview with um, Tracy Sorrell. So lots of uh, authors and illustrators who have already recorded episodes or who have, who are going to record an episode in the next week or so. I'm really excited for these conversations to be shared because if there's one thing that has been a through line through all of them, is how children's literature isn't just a light in our world, it's a light to a map for navigating our world. You know, we have these maps, but sometimes they're obscured, and children's literature helps us turn on the light so that we can figure out how to navigate this crazy world that we live in. And so for me, these conversations have been so, so joyful and affirming and bucket filling. And I just hope that they do the same thing for the people who get to listen. Oh, I'm so excited for this first season to come out. Um, you, You know, again, that idea of it being a map gave me actual chills. That's such a beautiful, beautiful message. 
And, you know, it's it's such a serendipitous moment that I'm getting to chat with you about this today because I was just having a conversation with a, a director of teaching and learning who said, we're trying to develop this ongoing book club at school, mm-hmm. but there's been so much contention around which books we choose. And I yeah. said, what if you don't choose the books and the club is actually like a book news club? So like yes. it's kind of this exponential get people talking about what books are out and I think your podcast would be perfect for anybody who likes that idea of doesn't have to be a book club, but what about a book news club where people could then love that idea, but what about also if it was just a theme? It's a book club, but you picked a theme and people got to choose the book that related to that theme and could share the different ways that that book helped them navigate that idea or related to that theme. There's a zillion ways to do book clubs. And I hope that my podcast, which by the way, I realize I'm the worst marketer in the world. I haven't even mentioned the title of yet. It's it's called The Reader's Heart. I hope that my podcast, alongside others, you know, like The Yarn with um, Colby Sharp and Travis Yonker and so many others. I hope that um, these tools become helpful for school leaders, for educators, for librarians, for parents, for anyone who wants to help kids find these tools for navigating our world. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm thinking too. Yeah, maybe your podcast, not having been able to listen to an episode yet, like that's a great thing to share with parents and caretakers. Um, who also, you know, might not always have time to keep up with, uh, you know, the latest in book news. Mm-hmm. Podcasts are great because they're portable, right? Like I'm listening right. when I'm at the supermarket, um, when I'm driving, when I'm doing the dishes. Uh, so is this also a great resource potentially for parents and caretakers in the school community? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, I've actually been thinking about, uh, to be fully transparent, the reason I've started doing this work is for my own students at Rutgers. I teach a young adult literature class in this semester, a children's literature class at Rutgers. And I wanted a way to connect my own students with authors and illustrators that was asynchronous. They could listen when they wanted. It was portable. They didn't need to be tied to a screen. They could listen while in the car, out for a walk, whatever. And it has grown into something that's much, much bigger. And I have been thinking about, you know, those drives to and from schools for parents who are able to take their kids to school every day. Not every parent has that luxury, but parents who do, you know, the listening to a a conversation between an author and illustrator and someone else can maybe give that family a jumping off point for a book they might read together. You know, oh, that sounds good. Maybe we should read that. The parent doesn't have to be the expert on every book, but they can maybe find something that piques the interest of everyone in their family and they can read it together. Or when you're talking about some of these authors have so many books that they could all read a different one, you know? So just the idea is a conversation starter with kids. I think that the podcast could be a useful tool there. I love that. And you know Last question. I've taken a lot of your time, but, you know, I feel like there's an integrated civics lesson here too. Um, You know, I, I often also recommend to people, it's a great either family or classroom experiment to have learners recommend one new book a month to their local library. Um, And, you know, local libraries have differing rules I'm based in Ottawa now, and so I mm. think I get I get three every month that I can recommend. I've sure. I've lived in communities where it's like limitless. 
Uh, yeah. You know, there's different parameters there, but I, I think that's also a really good experiment because one, it helps you learn, does the library already have that book? Right. And if they don't, you know, seeing, you can help shape, shape your local library that's in requesting. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that can be really powerful. And I'm wondering if just in closing, uh, you have a message, you know, libraries are under attack right now. It's not, I'm not being, uh, you know, dramatic in saying that. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts in closing here about other ways that folks can get involved in their library community or just support their local library and or or say something about why does that matter? Sure. So again, this could be a whole episode just on this, but you know, I often say, because I believe it with my whole heart, that libraries are one of the few remaining egalitarian institutions left on planet earth. They are one of only a handful of spots that you can go into regardless of how much money you make, what color your skin is, what faith you follow or don't follow, who you love, how you identify, and get the exact same access to what for me are the most important resources on earth. And those are story, information, and connection. And you get that same access um, through an institution that is publicly funded. There are not, I mean, help me find another, I mean, list of more institutions like that. They don't exist. And in 2024, when the chasm between our marginalized communities and those that are privileged becomes wider and wider and wider, institutions like libraries matter now more than ever, which I'm not a person who's prone to conspiracy theory, but I think is at least part of the reason why they're under attack. That being said, the reason why these attacks right now in this moment are being so successful is because they're highly organized and the individuals behind them have a big megaphone. They are being very loud and their messages are being amplified and pervasive. So the way to counter that is for a more factual narrative around libraries to be just as loud. And so for individuals who are maybe listening to this and are thinking, how do I support and help my local library, whether that's my public library or my school library or my, you know, community college library or whatever it is, the way that you support is number one, you find out if those institutions exist in your community. And if they don't, you ask why. If your school district doesn't have a school library for every school in that district, and that means also having a certified school librarian at the helm of that library, then as a taxpayer in that community, you need to ask why, and you need to demand that that be the case. The second thing is, is when those institutions, particularly your public libraries, have public meetings where these other folks are showing up to claim that the librarians are doing things to harm young people, you need to show up too and be a voice for what libraries really do. 
And if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know the answer to that, you don't know what libraries really do, then that's a perfect opportunity for you to volunteer. And if you don't have the ability to volunteer because your schedule's just super full, maybe transportation is an issue, et cetera, then you certainly can, can connect with your local librarian and ask some questions. I want to be able to help out, but I don't really have the time to be able to do it in this way now. What is a way that I can help you? Sometimes just the reaching out and letting a, an, a group of people right now who, as Tricia said, are under attack know that there are people out there who care for them, that in and of itself can be a balm for, you know, a, a, for folks who are really hurting right now. So there's an infinite number of ways to do it. The key is, is that you find the way that works for you and you get involved powerful message. Listeners, I hope you hear that. Um, again, librarians need our support right now. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Yeah, there's lots of ways. Just pick one. Thank That's you it. so much for giving your time to the podcast today. We are, I'm going to be waiting at the edge of my seat for your show to come out. I can't wait to listen. <laughs> um, and I feel like I, I would be absolutely shocked if anybody listens to this show or follows me on social media and is not following Jennifer but you'll be able to find in the show notes ways to connect with her because if you're passionate about anything that we chatted about in the past 30 minutes, you need to be following her online. You're an absolute champion for librarians and authors. Um, and I just, I love having you in my feed. So going all the way back to social media, what's it there for? Um, it can be a source of joy. And again, I just want to thank you. Like you're a big part of that for me. So thank you again for all the work you do. Oh, thank you. We're in this together. So right back at you. 